the Delaware Air National Guard celebrated its 75th anniversary in September of 2021. It's hard to believe that the Delaware Air National Guard is 75 years old and the Air Force as a whole is only 74 years old compared to the other branches of the military. We are kicking off a series of conversations with airmen from the Delaware Air National Guard that revolve around the topic of heritage and proud traditions of family members that have served in the armed forces for generations. Today's conversation is with retired Brigadier General Tom LePay and his son, Technical Sergeant Eric LePay. Here's their story. Good morning, Eric and Tom. Could I please have you both state your name, your rank, and your duty titles at your date of separation? Yeah, I'm uh, Tech Sergeant Eric LePay, Aircraft Loadmaster. Uh, Thomas P. LePay, Brigadier General, and I was the Assistant Adjutant General for Air, or Commander of the Delaware Air Guard when I retired. I think we'll go in order from father to son here. Tom, you joined the military in 1968. What was going on in your life at that time that got you to join? Um, I was an ROTC member. I was required back in that time uh, for land-grant universities, you know, of all male students. So I had to serve two years in ROTC, and uh, I enjoyed it. And uh, I knew that if I was successful in passing the physical and written tests uh, to do the second two years, or a total of four years of ROTC, I probably would be able to fly. My goal was to fly airplanes as a pilot. So I did that, uh, and uh, it was a pure joy of knowing what I wanted to do. I'm an engineer by education, but flying was clearly the number one priority. So that's that's why when I graduated, I was commissioned and went in the Air Force. So like father, like son, Eric, what were some of the driving forces that got you to raise your right hand? Well, I had been around the guard most of my young life as a, uh, you know, as a dependent. I had been, I came up here, you know, when they deployed. Other times I would spend time on the airfield. So I, I knew a lot of the people um, that my father worked with. And um, I went away to college for a year. Um, was somewhat of an expensive experiment. Didn't go great for me. I came home, was trying to find myself. And I ended up you know, deciding, you know, let me go, um, to the base and, and see. So, uh, I came to the base and I, um, met up with some people and, and even though my father had been in and he didn't really know I'd been to the base, I came home and I was like, uh, I saw Sergeant Korea today and, uh, he's like, he's a recruiter. I'm like, yeah, I said, I, I signed up. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I kind of went out and, uh, went around with somebody and, and I had the love for, for flying as well. I wanted to actually be a crew chief initially. Um, I took the ASVAB and I, I didn't quite make the cut on crew chief and I was able to be a loadmaster and it was the best points I ever missed on a test because loadmaster is like one of the best jobs in the Air Force for sure. So. so dad, how did you feel when Eric told you that he was signing up? I was happy. I was, I was pleased uh, with his vision and uh, supported 100%. I never, neither my wife nor myself suggested that he go in the military like maybe some parents do, but uh, he had been immersed in it as a family member, uh, as he explained, 
Uh, so we came out and I was happy. And I, we both parents thought about it and, and I had one desire, uh, recommendation to him that uh, to allow me to find somebody at the Delaware Air Guard to take him around the base. Don't listen to dad. Go around the base to the different shops where you can actually talk to people about what the shop does, what the people do, the training, and so forth, because there are so many different AFSCs, so many different skill sets, that uh, it's unusual and rare, actually, when people take jobs that they know what's involved. And so he, he thought that was a good idea, too, I believe, and uh, one of the chiefs on the base took him around all over the base, and he made his choice, and it was to become a loadmaster. I'd like to switch over to the topic of mentors. Eric, aside from your father, who were some of your mentors here when you joined at the 166? Uh, my early years, it was definitely um, the one that took me around was Chief Master Sergeant Mike Perry, um, Senior Master Sergeant Alan Shield. Actually, just recently passed away. He was definitely a mentor of mine. He was a stand of load that affected me a lot. And then some of the best were even some of my peers were kind of mentors, some people that I grew up with and um, Andrew Spears and his father, Mike Spears, um, you know, because we we did a lot together, deployed together. So it was uh, we would feed off of each other and, and give each other advice whenever needed and, and assistance. General Pay, same question for you. Who were some of your mentors when you joined the Guard? Uh, when I came into the Air Guard, um, gosh, a, a number of operations people. Um, I interviewed on my interview with DuPont here and interviewed with the Air Guard. And the, the fellow I spent a lot of time with, Colonel Jim Scott, or Scotty. Uh, he was Lieutenant Colonel at the time. And... The interview went real well, and the, and the result was, hey, Tom, if you come to Delaware to work for DuPont, you got a job here in the Air Guard as a pilot, part-time. Um, so, and then it grew from there. There were a lot of people, you know, Phil Gettle, uh, a lot of the enlisted side, uh, which maybe we'll get into later about. My history had been in the active Air Force, and so when I got in the Air National Guard, same airplane, different model, but I very quickly began to realize the differences, and in my view, all positive differences of being in the Air Guard. So a lot of mentors across the you know, officer enlisted ranks. So. so Eric, we were talking earlier about some previous deployments and combat sorties. One in particular though, one to Iraq, where you picked up a special memento can you tell us a little bit about this story and what it means to you? Um, yeah, one of my um, one of my first missions, we flew into uh, Talil, um Air Force Base, and I best describe it as almost like a, a movie scene. We um, the point we were we were marching on Baghdad. You know, the U.S. forces, coalition forces, were marching on Baghdad at that time, and biggest mission we had was to get people in place we needed to get people to where they needed to be one of those airfields was Talil. it was um south of baghdad and then those troops were going to be you know storming up towards baghdad to take baghdad um i remember because we had 60 to 70 kids i call them kids i was a kid back then 
I was young. Um, but we floor loaded them. They're all sitting on the floor. They have one, you know, chief that's sitting on his rock, kind of looking over all these kids that they couldn't have been, the average age had to have been 20, um, 21 years old. It was, um, you know, they looked, a lot of them looked scared. They didn't know what they were getting into. Um, but they were there to do their job. And, um, so we, we took them in, you know, night operations, we offloaded them, um, we're on our way back. We get out of, you know, Iraq airspace. We're kind of cleaning the plane up, getting ready for our next mission. And one thing that a lot of, um, a lot of troopers have is they have a, uh, a, a medallion that is from St. Christopher and it protects them. And I, um, one of the young troops, I found his medallion on the floor. So I, uh, I, you know, from that point, I vowed I would always wear it. I wore it on every mission on my dog tags um, after that and um, worn it till today. Yeah, to this day, I, I keep wearing it just in memory of him. Who knows him or her? If uh, they made it back, I'm sure they probably did, but we don't know. But I always had that memory of uh, the troops that, you know, we took in and, and you know, that were there fighting the, the good fight. On the same token of mementos, General LePay, I know you are very focused on your family history, and I was reading up online about an article where you took a trip to a French town where your grandmother served as a World War I army nurse, and you picked up some relics and photographs, and also a special memento that you worked on relocating to its family. Can you tell us a little bit about this story and its significance? My grandmother, my maternal grandmother, great lady, uh, nothing but positive memories about her, was a nurse by trade. Um, she volunteered to be a, an Army nurse uh, in the run-up to World War One, the U.S. involvement in World War One. She was from Alabama. She went to Michigan for training, uh, found quite a lot of records. Uh, I have her full military records from uh St. Louis. Anyway, she deployed by ship, of course, to France and was eventually based in uh, a 5,000 bed temporary field hospital, Base Hospital 64, which is uh, probably an hour south of Verdun, thereabouts. Anyway, I was very interested in that. And uh, after I'd retired, uh, Myself and some army friends, army retirees, would annually take trips. Uh, a lot of historic uh, purposes to that. And, and one of those was to go actually to the place. So I had arranged it. I was fortunate to contact a French senator. Uh, just found this person online that was from that area and responsible. Never heard from him, but his wife... Uh, contacted me and she was a gold mine of help uh, she coordinated everything from that side uh, quite connected I might add so uh, when I arrived with my two army friends uh, we were greeted by probably a 12 to 15 person reception party the mayor of the village or town uh, some Patton their general Patton was a colonel back in World War One. There's an organization, uh, George Patton organization there. 
They're archivists, they're historians. It was just across the board French reception, very warm and welcoming. And we had a big show in the city hall, and then we went to the, the actual site. And coincidentally, the mayor of this town, female mayor and her husband, still owned the property that was used for the hospital. You know, 2000, the correction, in 1918. So they took us here. And uh, they had saved a number of artifacts because they farmed this multiple acre or uh, location and gave me a number of artifacts. The still live rounds of ammunition I chose to leave there and not bring back with me. But uh, so they were really steeped in the knowledge of the history. The, the American cemetery where they actually buried deceased uh, soldiers uh, so it was it was well worth it, but to go on about the one of the artifacts was a dog tag from a patient at this hospital. And uh, when I came home with these artifacts, you know, I went through them again and I looked at it and I educated myself about what what the dog tags of people who served in the First World War meant, what they were like. For example, NA is. Was he in the Navy for N.A., or what did that mean on the dog tag? Just an example. N.A. stood for National Army. There was a National Army, then there was the Guard was involved, as we all know. Anyway, so I was really stabbing in the dark, and I, I contacted a couple of newspapers uh, in Kansas, I think, certainly in Arkansas, and just wondered if they had put an article in the paper about... I found this dog tag from what I know, this soldier enlisted, I guess, in Oklahoma. Uh, and it wasn't a week before I had two or three responses and I actually found the family. So, And to complete that, uh, I wanted to return the dog tag to the family, share the story with them, the meaning, meaningfulness of it all. So when I was on a trip once, I was able to coordinate that and I met the whole family presented the dog tag was welcomed with open arms and actually taken to the gravesite where the soldier is buried today. He was repatriated, initially buried there and then many many soldiers uh, were brought back to the states and buried so it was a fulfilling uh, emotional uh, experience it was very good and I can thank my grandma for that, great lady Wow, that's an amazing story, Tom. Thank you so much for sharing. So, Eric, how would you say that the Delaware Air National Guard shaped your life's trajectory? Well, it um, it gave me some purpose and meaning. Um, you know, I got in in 1997. Uh, I got to see us close down, you know, the Panama Canal and move out of Panama. And then, obviously, 9/11. Um, it gave me, you know, before 9-11, we were very involved in, you know, in Bosnia, Panama, Central, South America. Um, then after 9-11, everything, you know, directed, turned towards Asia. But it gave me just a purpose of, of being something bigger than myself and and being able to, you know, help our country and, and do what we needed to do. I know if I wasn't in at 9-11, I probably would have joined at that point. 
Um, I'm glad I was in at that point. And um, those were some of the days that, you know, I'll never forget, um, you know, after that being on alerts and launches. And it just, uh, you know, made me realize there's something bigger than just you. And, and it's, you know, the country we serve and, and all the people that that died in vain. We needed to, you know, stand up and protect us. And it just, uh, it allowed me to, to go forward. I used the guard for many years as I mean, primary employment, part-time employment. I had both roles um, and it, it gave me a, a you know, feeling of accomplishment, you know, to, uh, to deploy, come home safe, bring my friends home safe. And Tom, you've had a very long and distinguished career. Any stories that stand out that you might want to share with us today? Oh, a lot of things. Uh, stop me if you want to and uh, to move on. But when I joined the Delaware Air Guard, a um, couple of first things I noticed. First of all, uh, in the late 60s, in the United States anyway, the C-130 organizations were in Tactical Air Command. Now that's called ACC, or Air Combat Command. It was TAC then. The C-141 C-5s were in MAC military airlift man that's now AMC anyway when I arrived as a lieutenant trained C-130 pilot in my squadron maintenance had been separated on active duty basis and was under the wing uh, prior to that maintenance between the flying squadron and maintaining their airplanes that were assigned to that squadron was one organization and that, I didn't know any better. Uh, that, to me, uh, was a a separation of common purpose and intent. They did good work, uh, as did the flying squadron. But then I came to Delaware, it was still a different organization. I mean, it was the 166 Maintenance Squadron then, and the uh, 142nd you know, Flying Squadron. But since we were only one maintenance organization, one flying, we were very close. And we uh, we got to know each other between ops and maintenance and worked out the common goal of having well-maintained and safe airplanes for crews to fly properly and safely, accomplish the mission, mission, and then come back and give the planes back to maintenance to keep them in good shape. And they were old airplanes, not quite as old as the ones that are leaving now, but Anyway, that's one thing I noticed, and it, it proved to be very beneficial in my view. I guess the Air Force changed it to save money or something. But anyway, another thing I noticed, uh, not with a lot of time devoted to thinking about it, but it was obvious when I got in, roughly a thousand Air Guard members. There were two women and two non-Caucasian uh, well, it's black around. There was one African-American, another gentleman may have been African-American or some, some other background. And then there was one Asian. So that's five people out of a thousand people that weren't white men. Uh, we did we did good job. There were a lot of Korean veterans. There were still some World War II vets in the enlisted side. Uh, you know, I joined the Air Guard when it was about 27 years in existence it's been 28 years in the air guard and it's been 20 that i've been gone so i'm sort of in the middle third but what i witnessed there uh, which was meaningful to me is 
the expansion, as so many people call it, we ended up much better reflected in what our community was. You know, people from downtown Wilmington, uh, over the border into Pennsylvania, New Jersey, downstate. We had men, we had women, we had multi background people with different experience all coming together and doing a heck of a good job and and that was rewarding uh, and I will say uh, I and my peers were a part of making that happen you know we we hired women in jobs that had never been and we hired women when we were first allowed to have them in the airplane Air Force didn't allow that for a long time uh, so that was good that was good uh, so, so that's meaningful to me. Uh, I was a member of the f founding Air National Guard Combat Tactics Organization. This is about 1980. Uh, it ended up being, uh, I don't know if they still have the organization in, in Missouri and Arizona or not, but uh, before the active Air Force did... Uh, that thorough job, being able to create a tactics program so that C-130 air crews could better fly, accomplish the mission safely, uh, and survive in some circumstances in return. That was very meaningful. Um, and I participated in, the, at that time, it was MAC tactics, you know, at, in St. Louis uh, at the base out there, so. Uh, we built a, my view was different than some. My view was that the schoolhouse in Missouri and Arizona would train a few people from each organization and those people would go back to their their bases and train the rest of the crew, crews. My view was that you needed to train everybody. So myself and Roger Lambeth, who was chief flight engineer and... Uh, the head of Stanaval designed and built a tactics training program here, it included ground school, educational material, some classified, some not, and flying missions like we'd never flown before uh, to better train our air crews. So that was meaningful. And, you know, other meaningful uh, things were, were being uh, involved, deploying more real world than we had when I joined. 1977, we began, we, the Air National Guard, began uh, doing the Panama rotation, as Eric mentioned. A real-world mission, the Air Force turned it over to the Guard and Reserve. Uh, and that was quite rewarding. We did a lot of stuff there. Uh, along the way, the Delaware Air Guard performed support for Special Forces, uh, the SEALs, State Department, and other classified missions, uh, Department of the Navy. So real-world missions grew. People embraced that and were passionate about it and did excellent jobs. We were on a list, short list of go-to places to get things done. And uh, deployed as the first detachment commander to Desert Shield from the Delaware Air Guard. Uh, I was deployed as the Director of Operations, now called the OG or Ops Group Commander of the largest C-130 organization in the Desert Storm, an active Air Force C-130 squadron from Dias, one from St. Joe, Missouri, and the Delaware. So three squadrons, 
I was the OG or director of operations for that. We never missed a single mission. We flew every mission. There were some issues with my commander. Uh, the philosophy of guard versus active duty. Uh, and we worked through those. And fortunately, I think I represented the guard pretty well. All that was great. Came back and uh, went to headquarters and became more involved with the entire base. Uh, I like to mentor. I like to ensure we have career growth opportunities for enlisted and officers and that they see it. They don't just hear somebody say it. And we continue our, our wonderful history that I inherited and, and all you guys and gals are doing such a good job now, just making us proud. I could go on, but I won't. <laughs> and Eric, ever since you've retired, you've been heavily involved in our local veteran community. Can you tell us a little bit about that and some of the projects that you're working on? Yeah, I'm you know, involved with uh, various organizations, also uh, Heroes Welcome, um, Vet Fest 22 and 22, Stop Soldier Suicide. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, I that's one thing I've, I've done towards the latter end of my career is I enjoy giving back to some of these organizations and, and you know, get out there and just make people aware that there are these opportunities for them. There is help. There is assistance. There is awareness for that. Um, my civilian employer allows me to do a good bit of that as well within in my company. So I do that through JP Morgan. And then um, also my connections through the guard. I'm able to do that a lot with these other local groups and, um, you know, put up POWMIA chairs, bring awareness to things. We have, you know, Vet Fest coming up in September and Whitehall is a great event. Um, so, yeah, I, I just enjoy contributing, doing what I can do to bring awareness to that to help other people get to that point and um, just being a, a part of it allows me to be fulfilled, especially now that I'm not doing my guard role you know, anymore now that I'm retired. Even though you're out, you're still fighting the good fight, huh? He is, he is well known in the across the area of many people uh, for his volunteer work, whether it's Veterans Cemetery or VFW. I hear all the time Cross the board, army types, political people, regular citizens about, oh, that's your son. Yeah, no, it's, it makes the father proud. Paul, may I add one thing uh, that really, uh, towards the end of my career, was very important to me and I think significant for the Delaware Guard. Uh, the cyber warfare, you know, the network warfare squadron. Uh, that did not exist, uh, and nothing like it existed here until the mid to late 90s, and that came about with a lieutenant who was in the organization. Lieutenant Chuck Konzerski was an employee of the National Security Agency in his full-time life. Uh, Frank Pawnee retired as uh, one-star, two-star Tom Thomas, who worked for MBNA, uh, super, super guy. Anyway, we brainstormed, they brainstormed, and I was approached as a director of, op I'm sorry, the, I was already at General Headquarters about the feasibility of Delaware expressing interest in 
and doing that kind of work at the National Security Agency. I was 200% behind the effort because I thought that would be wonderful, uh, a necessary evil going forward in the technology world, you know, the cyber world that we all know and fear these days. Uh, we certainly have assets as, uh, as members of the, the Guard who have civilian jobs that lead the industry in that awareness and education. So uh, I was asked if I supported, uh, I would go to NSA with those gentlemen and meet with those people to talk about that involvement. So I ended up getting a top secret, you know, TSSCI clearance and went down there with those three and were received quite well. Uh, thanks to the lieutenant, that was our beginning and our inroad. And Delaware participated and sent people down there to see the work that we could do. It was never funded. It was not supported by the Guard Bureau. We were just sort of mavericks, the we or they. And it, it brought it to fruition. Uh, these names that I mentioned deserve all the credit because... They got it done. It's a, it's an extremely important mission. And for the members of the Delaware Air Guard who know the building is there, these guys built it. They got it funded. Uh, we don't know really what they do because of the classification, but it's critically and very important to the mission, security mission of the United States, both domestic and, and foreign. So uh, Delaware was a leader in that. And these guys... Uh, had skill sets that probably couldn't have been any better to to get that done. You know, Air Combat Command asked for Delaware, National Security Agency asked for Delaware in many different roles, and these guys some worked with them after they retired from the military. So, the Cyber Warfare Organization in Delaware has a wonderful history, and they do great work. They deserve. Yeah, it deserves to be known, even though they can't tell you the details. Thanks. Now, Tom, I know you've been retired since 2001, but you've still been actively involved in the Air Guard, especially years ago when the 166 was put on a base closing list. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how you fought to keep the 166 off that list? Delaware uh, you know, Base Realignment and Closure Committee uh, periodically uh, rack comes up and basically what it is do is considers ways to save money. You know, there are all kinds of bases that have closed over decades. We all know that. Uh, and the effort is to consolidate perhaps or save money for the defense budget. And it should be looked at. So back then... The BRAC committee considered the proposals in Delaware. Unfortunately, didn't make the list to survive, you know. Uh, there weren't a lot of explanations of what would happen to the Delaware National Guard without airplanes, but that was, that was the first result of BRAC's decision back then. And I, among others, many others, felt like it just didn't make sense. 
It just didn't make sense. And they were closing C-130 bases from basically all the way along the east coast of the United States. They, they wanted to. So logistically, it didn't make sense. Uh, and it became known that some important considerations that would have ended up resulting in Delaware being rated higher, in other words, keep airplanes, uh, weren't considered or considered accurately. So I, along with others, wrote the Principi, the chairman of the board, Mr. Principi, honorable, and uh, explained my views of it. And there was a lot of work that took place here, a lot of people, uh, Hugh Brumall, Tom Thomas and others actually delved into it enough to figure out how we could improve our standing. I mean, they there were a lot of a lot of lights on and offices late at night doing this, and, and we would receive political support. So uh, we attended the the meetings in Baltimore. They're open to the public, so we went down there and to summarize, we were successful in changing Delaware's future. Everybody played a part in that, a lot of people. Uh, and that was rare. A lot of people challenged the findings of BRAC committee, but were not successful in, in changing the end result. A lot, of pe- a lot of organizations lost airplanes. A lot of organizations closed down. Maybe someday there are going to be a lot of people from Willow Grove started their military careers that are still here in the Delaware Air Guard, and they know firsthand. Uh, what Brack did because Willow Grove was closed and Delaware Air Guard and Delaware, you know, the Dover Reserves brought a lot of those people on board and we're better off for it. So, uh, that was a good ending. And Eric, you had some involvement too, right? Well, I mean, as you just heard, that's all the bureaucratic and the officer political side of things. So I was trying to figure out what I could do at that time to uh, bring awareness to it so as an airman i decided let's have a party so we uh we um we basically i brought a lot of community leaders together community businesses we got to a local restaurant slash bar i had a friend's band uh contributed they played you know music all day so basically after drill we had a big party we raised money for the um we did a little fundraising for the um family support group on base we also got over 500 signatures on a letter to send to uh, the BRAC Commission of local, you know, police people that were uh, in support of the base. So, so we got together. We had a little fun after drill. We got some names together, sent a letter, submitted it to BRAC as well. And um, that's something sometimes people bring up to me. You know, we talk about memories and they're like, yeah, I remember that party you threw. <laughs> so that, we had a good time with it. And that um, community support was critically important. Yeah. And that was where we brought the community in and it really helped with a lot of what, you know, the officer side and the, a lot of the uh, people on base, you know, showing that we could keep the capability of our aircraft. And then we brought the local community into it and it, it definitely was very impactful. You know, these days with computer algorithms and data points, sometimes I just don't think about the boots on the ground, right? Um, an additional comment. At the hearings in Baltimore, many states spoke, and we had the benefit of sitting in the high seats and, and just watching, you know, 
Uh, different states had had different ways of approaching, you know, wanting to present their case, if you will. Delaware's was uh, quite impressive. Not a lot of bling in the slideshow, not overly air-forced in the slides, the colors, and the congestion. It were black and white slides, brief, to the point, easy to understand, and presented by three people, you know. Uh, a lot of thought went into the presentation itself, and it was quite successful. So in closing here, I just wanted to give both of you a chance to bring up any stories that you might want to talk about, or maybe any additional talking points that we haven't covered here today? Uh, well, we've covered a good bit. I mean, you know, just to, to get the word out that, you know, Guard is a uh, is a big family. Um, you know, people talk about that. I, I remember recently, um, you know, a friend of mine passed away and and his wife said, you know, it is a private service, but if there's anybody from Delaware that's going to come down here for it, their family, they're welcome to come. Um, you know, and, and that's what it's all about. There's numerous, numerous, I could go on forever about the, um, you know, we call them legacies, about the, the fathers, sons, daughters, brothers. I mean, we have so many in the Guard, and it's, uh, it's a big family. It's a big support network, um, you know big in the community in Delaware people know it and um, you know people that are in are proud to be part of it I never had an issue of saying you know I'm in the Delaware Guard you know it was always uh, something I would admit and be proud of and just want to see it keep going forward keep the the legacy going the heritage the you know have everybody remember some of these like things that we talked about in the past keep that going um, and make new memories and, and have the new people take over and keep those memories of deployments of, you know, the base and things going on and, and keep that going strong because this could be a great unit, you know, for, for decades to come. And, and I definitely see that. And, you know, I'm, I'm proud of a little piece of the, the pie I was able to do. And, and I'd love to keep seeing it as it goes forward from here on out. And Tom, I guess we'll give the final thought to you. Uh, the, the Air National Guard ended up being the most enjoyable and rewarding work-life experience, and uh, it could have been uh, different if I had not discovered the Guard you know, back, back in when the days that I got in. A lot of people weren't even aware. If you didn't have some exposure to the National Guard, you weren't aware too much of of the great opportunities that it offered. So for me, it was wonderful. I don't know who the audience is, might vary from who listens to this podcast, but I would like to say, you know, we have a lot of regulations and rules and AFIs in the military uh, point things out, but I will tell you that what we don't have is excess people. You know, we don't, uh, everybody has an AFSC, they're well-trained, they're skilled, different levels of skill. Every single person here uh, is not an excess luxury type person. They play a critically important role. What that means is we're all in this together. I don't care what your job is. 
if you're not the tip of the spear, you're the spear. You're somewhere involved and it doesn't get done. It doesn't get accomplished safely and again and again unless everybody is involved. So hats off, salute to everybody. The new airman from tech school and the old guy or gal who's just retired and going out the door. You know, And that common purpose, whether we talk about it or not, I think is what um, makes this organization and the military different than just a job or just a career, you know, where it's not quite so team-focused. So the last comment I'll have is it's important to the strength of this organization that we mentor younger people. We all remember somebody that was important to us, the aha moment where we learned something or they guided us directly or indirectly somehow. So it's important that we all do that and show that you have an opportunity here to grow. You know, if you want to progress, you want to, you want to get promoted, you want to get different jobs, that there's a way to do that. That there's always career growth opportunity in the enlisted house and the officer side too. And that will just reap wonderful benefits for everybody. So that's my closing comment. Thank you. Well said, Tom. Well said. I don't think we could actually end this discussion on a better note. I'd like to thank you and Eric today for joining us here in the studio. And we would love to have you back again sometime in the future. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast channel and share it with your friends so we can continue to bring you more episodes and stories in the future. This is Staff Sergeant Paul Thorson of the 166 Airlift Wing Public Affairs Team signing off.